In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers, and we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little bit more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com beat and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com beat. Thanks for your help. Welcome to The Beat. I'm Katie Fang in for Ari Melber. We start with breaking news on Donald Trump's coup charges and the United States Supreme Court. Late today, Donald Trump's lawyers urging the United States Supreme Court to delay hearing arguments on a monumental question, whether he has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for his actions trying to overturn the 2020 election. Trump's new filing coming in response to special counsel Jack Smith, who's urging the high court to fast track this case. Today, Trump's lawyers telling the court it should wait until a lower court has ruled while questioning why Smith wants to move so quickly, arguing that Smith's proposal would lead to a, quote, radically compressed timetable and that, quote, the special counsel identifies no compelling reason for the extraordinary haste he proposes. At another point, Trump's lawyers quoting the phrase, haste makes waste. This is the core Trump legal strategy across criminal cases. Delay, delay, delay. And today, Trump's lawyers arguing that the case should first go through the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is already scheduled to hear all arguments on January 9th, because that is part of, quote, ordinary procedures, according to Donald Trump. But that word, ordinary It's in direct contrast to Smith's arguments to the court. Jack Smith writing, quote, the United States recognizes that this is an extraordinary request. This is an extraordinary case. Smith also arguing that speed is essential, calling it imperative that the trial proceed as promptly as possible. Now, the question of immunity getting to a point Smith made in one of his few on-camera statements. Nobody is above the law. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle. Violations of those laws put our country at risk. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. So there's a lot in today's filing. Trump's lawyers saying that because he faced impeachment over the insurrection, Trump cannot face prosecution for the same actions. And they say that questioning the outcome of the election was among Trump's official duties. There's a lot to get to tonight. Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, will be here later. But we're going to start with this late-breaking development, with Trump asking the Supreme Court to just wait. Joining me now is Emily Bazelon, legal writer with The New York Times Magazine, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal contributor. Good afternoon, good evening to both of you. Barbara, I'm going to start with you. Listen, your reaction to Trump's newest filing with SCOTUS, I will note they start immediately with an argument that Jack Smith doesn't have standing to be able to seek the relief that he's seeking. Yeah, that's just a non-starter. We have seen the Supreme Court use this remedy some uh, 49 times in the past 100 years and 25 times in the past decade. So 
it's uh, it's often brought by the government and it's brought in this sort of situation where everybody knows it's destined for the Supreme Court anyway, especially when it involves presidential power. And so certainly as a prosecutor in a case where uh, an immunity defense is at issue, he absolutely has standing to bring this claim. So, you know, uh, it, it seems that uh, anything but the merits is, uh, is is what Donald Trump wants to talk about right now, including delay. Uh, but this is just, you know, one Hail Mary effort after another to try to slow this freight train down. You know, Emily, to Barb's point, friend-in-law is what I'll call him. Steve Vladek, who's a University of Texas law professor, tweeted out the following, that Trump's own DOJ has asked the Supreme Court to leapfrog courts of appeal on 10 occasions, with five times SCOTUS saying yes to the request. And so isn't what's good for the goose going to be good for the gander here? Yeah, I mean, look, this is a straight up claim, a legal claim about presidential power. It's making an incredibly broad argument that Trump, that presidents cannot be prosecuted for anything they do while they're in office. That's what absolutely immunity means. And it is absolutely a case that will come to the Supreme Court. So the notion that there's something untoward about skipping the intermediate appellate courts, there is precedent for doing that. Um, And Steve Vladek has a really good point there. So, Barb, let's talk about speed. Do the Supreme Court justices in any way actually consider this issue? And are those do those factor in any way when they decide whether or not they want to accept a petition for writ of cert to fast track a case? I don't think so. I mean, I do think they have to see what else is on their docket. Um, You know, this Colorado Supreme Court decision has suddenly (laughs) reared its head and may actually uh, push uh, Jack Smith's appeal to the back burner for a little bit. Um, I think one thing that might stand in the way is since the time Jack Smith filed this, we've seen the District of Columbia Court of Appeals issue its own expedited order. Uh, They were uh, originally moving at a slower pace uh, and they jumped in and said, wait, 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 we'll go fast, too. So uh, that could um, give us a little bit of a breather before the Supreme Court takes this case up. But I think the most important argument and the most persuasive argument that Jack Smith has is the public's right to a speedy trial. Um, what Donald Trump says in today's filing is that's not a legitimate claim. It's a political claim, this idea that uh, we want Trump to go on trial. But the public, just like the defendant, has a right to a speedy trial. And so uh, building in delays by uh, deciding this immunity question that could push it past the election is not in the best interest of the public. And so I think I think the court has to look at that issue in deciding whether to take this on an expedited basis. So, Emily, there's 34 pages to the filing that Trump's lawyers did today. Is there anything in this filing that you found to hold any water whatsoever? Hmm. (laughs) That's sort of a loaded question. I mean, I think they're doing the best they can with a set of facts that are not great for their client um, because this is a weak legal claim they're mounting in the first place, because while it is not the usual um, order of affairs to go straight from district court to the Supreme Court, it in this case, um, there are all kinds of reasons for it. So, you know, I think the best argument they have is that this is out of the ordinary. And the problem is that It is the charges against former President Trump. Um, It's all the norms that he has broken that kind of forces other actors, other parts of the system to do things that are out of the ordinary. And that's a real challenge he poses to the whole way we our system works. Yeah. So, Barb, one thing that really struck out to me in this filing was the following. The argument, quote, accordingly, this court 
has repeatedly emphasized that impeachment, not criminal prosecution, provides the principal check and deterrent to a president's malfeasance in his official acts. I mean, so, Barb, Trump is trying to advance the argument that impeachment in lieu of criminal prosecution is the way to go. Your thoughts on whether or not the Supreme Court thinks that that actually would make any sense whatsoever? Yeah, you know, I, I noticed in th that language, Katie, as well as the way they frame the issue here. And, you know, as you know, framing the issue is a very clever way lawyers can have of trying to win a case. And so in framing the issue, what they say is not that the president is immune for everything, but that when the president acts in his official capacity, he is immune. So what they're arguing is everything he did was within his capacity as president, and therefore impeachment is the remedy when someone is acting within the scope of his duties as president. Of course, what Jack Smith has charged is that he went well beyond the scope of his duties to commit crimes, that they were, this was not part of his duties to interfere with an election. And so I think that it's a clever way of trying to reframe the issue. I don't think the Supreme Court is going to fall for it. I think they're going to see this for what it is, which is allegations of acting outside the scope of his duties by committing crimes. And Emily, quickly to Barb's point, right? So at the very beginning of the filing from Donald Trump's legal team today, they actually say that special counsel Jack Smith framed the question incorrectly. And for our viewers to understand, when the Supreme Court decides to take up a case, it takes up a case with a question, right? It's the idea that there's an issue or a question that is of such paramount importance that it has to be addressed by the Supreme Court. Do you think, Emily, that the Supreme Court is actually going to maybe consider which kind of question or how it's framed when it takes up the case? They will definitely think about what kind of question and how it is framed, and they can reframe the question. They don't have to accept um, the the question exactly as it is written that the party um, puts forward. So that's another option for them here. Barbara McQuaid, I want to thank you. It's so good to see you, my friend. Emily, please stay with us, because coming up, we also have an expert on what the Supreme Court might do about Trump's potential crimes. Also, Trump name checks Hitler and Mein Kampf in trying to defend himself from comparisons to Nazi rhetoric. Michael Cohen is our very special guest on all of that tonight. We've got a big show. We'll be back in just 60 seconds. Tonight, an inflection point for Donald Trump and the United States Supreme Court. The court potentially facing a historic trifecta of important cases in the coming weeks with broad implications for both the 2024 election and at least one of Trump's criminal trials. As we just discussed, the court weighing whether to take up the issue of absolute presidential immunity in Jack Smith's federal coup case. The court also agreeing to hear an appeal from a January 6th defendant on whether to dismiss a charge of obstructing an official proceeding, a charge that Donald Trump is also facing. And yesterday, the Colorado Supreme Court barring Trump from appearing on the GOP primary ballot, citing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Trump's campaign vowing to appeal that ruling to the Supreme Court. Taken together, these three cases could have the most significant impact on a presidential election since Bush v. Gore in 2000. 
The U.S. Supreme Court has just released its ruling in one of the most important decisions it will make in its modern history. There were many questions from the justices about the equal protection under the law provision of the U.S. Constitution. That's the 14th Amendment. It's an all-out victory for the Bush team no matter why. The dissents in the dramatic ruling are stinging. Justice Breyer says the split decision risks undermining public confidence in the court itself. More than 20 years later, there's just one justice, Clarence Thomas, of all people, that remains from that decision. Thomas now himself at the center of a renewed crisis of public confidence in the court. Recent polling shows a majority of Americans, 58 percent, disapprove of the Supreme Court, inevitably raising the stakes for the future rulings in all three cases involving Donald Trump. Emily Bazelon is back with us and joining us is Richard Pildes, constitutional law professor at NYU. He actually clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall and has argued several cases before the United States Supreme Court. He also served on President Biden's 2021 commission on the Supreme Court. It's so nice, Emily, for you to be with us again. And Richard, thanks for joining us. Richard, let's start with you. The issue of absolute presidential immunity. What's your reaction to Trump's filing, his brief in opposition that he filed today to Jack Smith's own petition for writ to seek expedited decisions by the Supreme Court on this matter? I think the most interesting issue about this is whether the Supreme Court's going to take the issue up immediately or whether it's going to let the D.C. Circuit decide this issue first. And I think this disqualification decision from the Colorado Supreme Court may affect the U.S. Supreme Court's decision about whether to hear Jack Smith's case now or to let the D.C. Circuit go first. Richard, I want to stay with you for a second then. I'm not trying to be glib, but can't they, as in the Supreme Court justices, walk and chew gum at the same time? I mean, these are critical cases that not only impact American democracy, but what that looks like moving forward post-decision 2024. That's absolutely true. Uh, but the court is also uh, always concerned about its own sort of legitimacy and perception. And given that it absolutely has to take the Colorado case, which is going to put the court you know, right in the middle of a momentous question about the 2024 election, uh, I don't know if the court's going to uh, want to push to the side uh, for later the case about immunity and let the D.C. Circuit go first or whether it's going to take that on and add to its docket now three cases uh, that you know could have implications for the 2024 uh, election. You know, Emily, Trump's election lawsuits have not fared well at all in front of this Supreme Court in 2020. Do you think that his campaign, even though it may not be his legal team, but do you think his campaign might be worried that these cases and, 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 the, and his lack of success may actually extend to one or more of the cases that might end up in front of the Supreme Court? I mean, sure. Look, each of these cases will rise and fall on its own merits. I think they have more to worry about um, in the Jack Smith appeal here because this absolute immunity argument that the Trump side is making is so broad. The Colorado case is, um, you know, in the view of a lot of scholars, a close call. We're talking about this really novel question about um, when you're not eligible to run for office based on the 14th Amendment. And that one, I think it's not really clear how it's going to come down. So, you know, they might be uh, if, they, if they think they're going to win one, maybe that's the one they are more confident about.
Richard, I want to stay on this issue of Colorado. We're going to turn to Trump's disqualification from being on the GOP primary ballot. Here is what the Colorado Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, had to say about the path forward. Take a listen. If they take the case, we, we will make clear to the court the, the deadlines and the timelines. Um, you know, the, the, the bigger thing is if the court does not take the case. Uh, as of January 5th, if the U.S. Supreme Court does not take the case or intervene, then Donald Trump will not be on the presidential primary ballot. So, Richard, what will this Colorado decision mean for other states with pending challenges? And how about other states that might actually now see new challenges as a result of what happened in Colorado? Yes. So before the Colorado decision, there were three state courts that had addressed this issue, and they had all rejected the effort to disqualify Trump from the ballot. Uh, the Colorado decision, I think, is going to encourage you know, further cases to be filed, uh, maybe it will embolden other state courts to go in the same direction. Uh, but we know this issue is going to be resolved in the Supreme Court now. There's simply no way the Supreme Court uh, can tolerate different views in different states about whether Donald Trump is qualified to be on the ballot. And I think the court's going to you know, move very quickly on that case. It has to. There are tremendous uh, time urgencies around that, as uh, the Secretary of State said. Ballots have to be you know, printed. Uh, primaries are going to be going forward. Uh, so this is an issue that, that the court cannot avoid, much as I think it would prefer not to be uh, in the position of addressing this question. Yeah. And Emily, to Richard's point, is there an off ramp for the Supreme Court wherein they absolutely could say, you know what, we're just going to let it lie the way it was decided by the Colorado Supreme Court? Or as a matter of law, is it obligated to take up this particular appeal? I mean, they could let it lie. It just seems super unlikely for the reasons that Rick was just giving, because you have the already different rulings from different states on this matter. And we're talking about the 14th Amendment. That's part of our national constitution. The interpretation of it ultimately lies with the Supreme Court. And it's this novel, very tricky question. So the idea that you would allow uh, the, you know, the fate of Trump's eligibility in the primaries to rest with one state's take on it. It just doesn't seem like a likely outcome. And yet that one state's take is a true read of, this, of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Emily Bazelon and Richard Pildes, thank you both for being here and happy holidays. I appreciate it. Thanks, thank you, too. And a lot still ahead in the show, including Donald Trump now defending his comments that echoed Nazi rhetoric. And troubles multiplying for Trump insiders like Rudy Giuliani. Former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen is here on all of it and more. He's live next. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day. Each morning in your inbox with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Is Trump an insurrectionist, sir? 
certainly they're self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. And uh, he seems to be doubling down on about everything. Anyway. President Biden weighing in on the ruling disqualifying Trump from the Colorado ballot. We turn now to a very special guest. Michael Cohen was Donald Trump's longtime fixer and lawyer with unique insights into how Trump is reacting to all of his legal setbacks. Trump's been lashing out, as we know, on social media after getting disqualified from the GOP primary ballot in Colorado with allies rushing to his defense on right wing media. These seeds were planted by the Democrats on January 6th itself. It was no accident from the very beginning that they insisted on calling this an insurrection. This is election interference. Setting a precedent to knock Trump off dozens of state ballots. It is a strikingly anti-democratic holding. It is unequivocal. Donald Trump is not guilty of insurrection, not legally, not factually. And this case will be thrown out by the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, that is a clown car of Trump supporters. Okay, so even many of Trump's rivals, though, in the GOP primary race feel compelled to attack the ruling and to defend Trump. The Colorado Republican Party is also threatening to withdraw from the state's primary if Trump is not on the ballot. Joining me now is Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer. He's the host of the Maya Couple podcast and the host, co-host of the Political Beatdown podcast. Michael, it's always so good to see you and to spend time with you. First, let's start with the big news today. What is your take on Trump now trying to delay his coup case from getting to the Supreme Court? I mean, for somebody who is as innocent, in quotes I'm putting, as he claims to be, Trump sure isn't in any rush to be vindicated by the highest court in the land. Yeah, <laughs> because... As we've been talking about forever, Katie, everything with Donald is delay, delay, delay. His hope is that the result or the decision by the Supreme Court will be delayed post the election or up to the point where the election is taking place. That way, once again, if and when he loses, and this is really the more dangerous aspect, if and when he loses the election, he will now have something to blame it on. Because as we all know, Donald can't lose to somebody like Joe Biden. He's a winner. Joe Biden is a loser, blah, blah, blah. So it's a real problem right now. And what Donald wants to do is delay it, delay it, delay it, just as he has tried to delay everything and all of the legal issues that are currently confronting him. So, Michael, immediately after that ruling came out late yesterday, Trump went to Truth Social, posted the usual dribble, but did not actually mention specifically what happened in Colorado. How do you think Trump is handling this news that a court has determined, a Colorado Supreme Court has determined that he is disqualified for being on the ballot in Colorado? (laughs) Well, first of all, the problem that we have is the people that are around Donald are advising him that there's no way that the Supreme Court is going to let this thing stand. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of people that have reached out to me over the last 36 hours asking me, what do you think is going to happen? And truth be told, I don't know. 
Nobody knows. The pundits don't know. You know, the uh, commentators don't know. Lawyers don't know because this is such a novel situation. It's never it's never been it's never been before the Supreme Court before. So they're telling Donald people like Cash Patel, they're telling Donald, don't worry about it. You're going to win this. You know, you're going to be vindicated. Of course, what does Donald do in the interim? He's fundraising off of it. And so he's not thinking about what will come down the road. You see, Donald also is not somebody that thinks about anything that's greater than 24 to 48 hours ahead. This he sees as months and months and months. And as we all know, he has many other legal issues that, you know, take that, that will ultimately be coming to fruition well before this Supreme Court decision. And he's worrying more about those right now. Yeah. And Michael, to your point about Trump's many legal issues, he's got tons of lawyers in Trump world. We we know we've talked about it before, you and I, four separate criminal cases in four different jurisdictions, at least one or two civil fraud cases, the E. Jean Carroll damages trial coming up in January. I mean, Do the lawyers that are a part of Trump legal, do they have the competency bandwidth to be able to coordinate multiple battlefronts on behalf of Donald Trump? (laughs) I don't think this entire clown show of lawyers that he currently has, I like to call them the D team. I mean, just look at the nonsense that, you know, gets spewed every day out of the mouth of someone like Alina Habba. If that is your spokesperson, if that's the person that you have front and center on your legal issues, he's got some real problems ahead of him. You know, they, this is just this is just like a um, it's it's an infomercial, the very similar to what Donald had said when he was deciding that he was going to run in 2016, that it was supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of U.S. politics. When he has this group of of lawyers, I can't it's just clown show out there speaking on his behalf, saying things that are different, in fact, than what he's saying. It just it just it's the same thing as I had just said. It's supposed to be an infomercial for his political campaign, and it has nothing to do with the legal merits of any of these cases. Well, let's talk about one of the, I guess, faces of Trump's legal world. That would be Rudy Giuliani continuing to attack <laughs> Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss even during his defamation trial, after his defamation trial, and he continues to do so. Take a quick listen. Of course I don't regret it. I told the truth. They they were engaged in changing votes. Your initial allegations, you still believe them to be true? Uh, yeah, well, of course, they'll sue me again for it when I say that. But yeah, I do. But they want me to, they want me to lie. They, they basically, they are suing me in order to lie to them. Okay, so Michael, you know Rudy better than most. I think Rudy is playing the crazy like a fox angle. At some moments, there's some kind of clarity from him. A lot of the moments, not any. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I think Rudy actually has lost it. Um, it doesn't really matter at this point, you know, whether they sued him and they, you know, there's a $148 million judgment, um, $14.8 million as a judgment, or $1.48 billion as a judgment. Rudy doesn't have two cents to rub together at this point. So he knows that they're not going, he's uncollectible. They're not going to be able to collect anything from him. And everybody keeps talking about his home here in Manhattan and so, first of all, that presumes that there's no mortgage. Second of all, he owes money to his ex-wife. He owes $150,000, supposedly, in phone bills. He owes a couple hundred thousand dollars in legal fees. There's going to be taxes on the unit. There is no money here for these two women that were harmed by Rudy. So he will continue to play this game. And why is he doing it? He's doing it because he believes that if he stays on this message, that he is doing something something and showing fealty to Donald Trump. So that hopefully if Donald Trump wins in 2024, that somehow or another that Donald will be able to save him and he will be able to give him some sort of position and he'll be able to use his power within the Department of Justice in order to exonerate Rudy and to get rid of this entire um legal nightmare that he's currently in. I mean, that's how deranged this entire group is. They're not thinking about the law. They're thinking how they can skirt the law using Donald Trump as the base of it. I'd say maybe Rudy could get a loan from Deutsche Bank, but I don't think he's a good lending risk at this point. Michael Cohen, (laughs) stay with me. Don't go anywhere, because after the break, we're going to dive into Donald Trump's unprecedented assault on American democracy as he echoes the rhetoric of dictators and he praises autocrats. I want to turn to new heat on Donald Trump. He's under fire for doubling down on racist comments he made over the weekend, saying this just last night in Iowa. They're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They don't like it when I said that. And I never read Mein Kampf. They said, oh, Hitler said that in a much different way. Trump in recent days has been widely condemned for the comments about immigrants, which echoed the rhetoric of Adolf Hitler. Here is what Trump originally said. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world. GOP senators offering up some, I'd say, tepid criticisms, saying, quote, I obviously don't agree with that. We're all children of immigrants. And, quote, I certainly wouldn't have said that. And calling it, quote, unhelpful rhetoric. Unhelpful. Hmm. Joining me once again is Michael Cohen. Michael, we are all children of immigrants. Um, Trump's violent and fascist rhetoric seems to be getting worse and worse as we push forward to decision 2024. How low can he go before we actually see some measure of repercussions for what he's saying and doing? There is no depth to which Donald will sink in order to continue to stir up his base. Now, of course, Donald has not read Mein Kampf. Donald doesn't read. I mean, it's not that he didn't want to read it. It's just that unless it's in cliff notes or unless somebody read it to him, Donald does not read. 
You got guys like Steve Miller who are writing these speeches for him and discussing it with him. So he knows exactly what he's saying. You know, in my first book, Disloyal, I talk about an encounter that I had with Donald with a um, with an employee of the Trump organization who was German. And while we were having a conversation, Donald stopped the conversation and he goes, you know, I just had a thought. He goes, I bet your family chased Michael's family through the Red Forest. And I looked and I said, hey, boss, you do know my father is a Holocaust survivor. So he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I said it. Donald knows exactly what he's saying. He is playing to the lowest denominator of American that exists in this country, the racist, anti-Semitic animals that exist uh, in that MAGA world. That's who he's playing to. And he will only go lower each and every time that he says something and he generates more and more conversation and he becomes front page news. He will then steep and go much lower to the point that even I can't tell you how low he will go. Trump's grandfather came from Germany. Trump's mother came from Scotland. Stephen Miller's family came from Belarus. I mean, it's convenient, right, that they forget what their heritage is. You know, Michael, you also actually wrote and two, by about the way, Trump. Two, by the way, let's not forget two out of yeah, but let's not forget two out of his three wives as well are immigrants. So and you Eric, know. then his children are then I guess the, the blood of the Trump legacy is also poisoned from the immigrate uh, the immigrant blood, I guess, of his wives then. So wait. So, Michael, you also allegedly said in your book that Trump made racist comments in your book, Disloyal. You write, quote, Trump once asked me if I could name a country run by a black person that wasn't a S-word whole. Are Trump's public statements now mirroring his private conversations? <laughs> it's not just in disloyal that they mirror. The same is in the book Revenge, where I keep talking about the weaponization of the Justice Department by Trump and his minion against his critics. He's now, of course, deflecting and using that and making claims that it's the Biden administration that's doing it to him. So, yes, it's mirroring every single thing that I said. Why? Because I know him better than almost anybody. And I know what he's thinking and I know what he's planning on doing because Donald doesn't have new thoughts. Everything is a regurgitation of something from the past. You know, he is truly the most dangerous person right now in this country and possibly the world. And we better start taking this incredibly seriously. Otherwise, we're going to lose our democracy. And I hate it when people say, oh, you're just being hyperbolic. You're just an anti-Trumper and so on. Yeah, maybe I am an anti-Trumper. You want to call me that? No problem. Why? Because I'm telling you the truth. And it's not. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to Katie. Listen to what Donald is telling you himself. You know, Donald is of the mindset, you know, ignore what you hear from anybody else, listen to me, but only the things I want you to believe. I mean, it's absolutely insane. And the fact that there are so many Americans still out there that are supporting him. How about when he turned around and he said today that, you know, he's talking about um, and an immigration bit, Asia, he's talking about Africa, and then he's talking about South America. Look at the racist undertone that we're talking about here. You're talking about Asians. You're talking about Hispanics, Latinos and blacks. 
He doesn't want them in the country. He's going to shut down all of immigration. Why? Well, because as president, he thinks that he can do it. And he will try to do it the same way that he accomplished violating my First Amendment constitutional rights because he didn't like what was going to be coming out about him. I mean, this is who the man is. He is a dictator wannabe. Oh, I don't think, Michael, you and I don't disagree often. I will disagree with you on two points. One, I don't think he's a dictator wannabe. I think he is a dictator. And number two, I don't think those are racist undertones. I think those are very, very clear racist messages that he is sending. But Michael Cohen, I'm out of time. Thank you for being here. It's always so good to see you. Good to see you, Katie. And coming up next, I have a special guest who's here to talk about why 2023 was the hottest year on record. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Now to the climate emergency, which rapidly intensified this year. And in a moment, a special guest, activist and writer Bill McKibben on potential solutions. But first, let's look at the facts. Scientists say that 2023 was the hottest year on record, that the rise in temperatures is being driven by human activity, and that next year could be even hotter, which could trigger more extreme weather events around the world. Catastrophic Category 5 storm, that hurricane bringing heavy rains and winds up to 165 miles per hour. This is the power of climate change. Because of these record warm waters, this thing rapidly intensified. A summer of devastating storms, ferocious wildfires and scorching heat. The world's glaciers shrinking at a dramatic pace right before our eyes. Nearly 200 million Americans will experience temperatures above 90 degrees today. Even quick contact with the ground here, which can hit 180 degrees, may cause first-degree burns. Climate scientists said the findings are, quote, like something out of a Hollywood movie. 2024 already on our radar as a potential uh, record-breaking year. And with that, I turn to Bill McKibben, acclaimed author and environmentalist, the founder of Third Act, a group fighting climate change and a frequent New Yorker writer. His latest piece is about the United Nations announcing the hottest year on record. Bill, I was just talking to the EP of the show before you came on about how important these segments are, that we still need to sound the alarm about what is happening to our world collectively. 2023, hotter than expected. How much hotter could it get next year and the years after? I saw when I was preparing for your interview the world on average has seen about a 2.63 degree Fahrenheit warming above pre-industrial temperatures just this year, with local greenhouse gas emissions hitting new highs. 2023 was a crazy year, no doubt, Katie. 
And, uh, you know, it, it's true that it was the hottest year for which we have records, and those records go back to the 1800s. But scientists are good at extending that record back with proxies like tree rings and ice cores. They're convinced that this was the hottest year in at least 125,000 years. Uh, that is, no human society that we would recognize has ever lived through a climate like the one we're living through. And you were enumerating just a few of the amazing and chaotic effects that we're seeing. 2024 is likely to be hotter still. As you know, the, um, the UN promised in 2015 in Paris that we would try to keep temperature increases below 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, two degrees at the worst. We went past, at least temporarily, both those marks in the course of this year. So we are in completely unprecedented territory. Um, the only good news is that just as we were breaking those records, we were also starting to see and Biden's IRA Act is one reason, the real quick deployment of renewable energy. By midsummer, around the world, there was about a gigawatt of solar power being installed every day. That's about a nuclear power plant's worth of solar panels every day. Now, half of that was in China, but that still leaves a lot for the rest of the world. So what we have is this dramatic race now between the ongoing heating of the planet and the only real effort we have to slow that down, which is to replace coal, gas, and oil with sun and wind and batteries. So, Bill, you and I can have this conversation till we're blue in the face. Scientists that are, you know, trafficking in facts and evidence can sit here and put out the reports and their and the journal into the journals into the public sphere about what's going on. But are you still worried that most people still don't understand how dire the situation is? One of the most alarming things I've heard is that it's not that we could ever roll everything back to the beginning, Bill. It's just we got to slow it down now. Well, that's true. We're long past the point where stopping climate change is on the list of options. That's a sad fact, but true. What we're trying to do now is stop it short of the point where it derails civilizations. We'll see. Um, this last month, the world came together sort of in Dubai for this climate conference. It was mostly a farce run by the CEO of the Abu Dhabi oil company, but with a lot of pressure from activists around the world, there was one sentence in that outcome that may matter. All the countries of the world, including the U.S., pledged that they would have a transition away from fossil fuel. That's the first time in these 28 <laughs> annual meetings that we've mentioned the word fossil fuel, which if you think about it is pretty crazy. It's like having 28 conferences on lung cancer before you got around to talking about cigarettes. But it's a start. And we will see if the countries of the world meant it. In particular, we'll see if the U.S., the biggest exporter of oil and gas in the world, meant it. Sometime in the next few weeks, the Biden administration is going to make a decision about whether to continue with the biggest fossil fuel build out in the world, this export of LNG from the Gulf Coast. If President Biden and Secretary Grandholm of the Energy Department pause the granting of new permits for this, that'll probably be the biggest action that any president has yet taken to take on dirty energy. I think that if he does that, it may actually 
revitalize uh, uh, some of his support among young people and among old people. At Third Act, which organizes people over 60, we know that older voters are the second biggest group after young voters of climate voters. And in general, 70% of Americans understand that climate change is a real problem and want serious action. At this point, 70% of Americans agreeing on anything is pretty good. So uh, that's mostly because Mother Nature is an awfully good educator. And, you know, at a certain point, you get hit upside the head enough times with floods and fires, you start to, you, learn. you know, it, it knocks some sense into you. You do. Bill McKibben, thank you so much for being here tonight, for sharing this very important message. We'll be right back. That does it for me. Be sure to catch my show weekends at 8 a.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC.